0: Second conference, the persecution of Antichrist and the conversion of the Jews. Et tunc revelabitor ille iniquus quem Dominus Iesus interficiet spiritu ori sui et destruet illustrazione adventus sui. And then that wicked one shall be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus shall kill with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Second Thessalonians two eight. The world will have an end. This is a truth which we have established, and which faith and reason alike prove. The end of the world and the subsequent final coming of the Son of God will happen unexpectedly, with the rapidity of lightning, rending the clouds as it darts from east to west. However, precisely when that day will come is a secret hidden in the depths of the divine intelligence. We know neither the day nor the hour, and Jesus Christ, the ambassador of the divinity on earth, tells us that he has been explicitly commanded not to disclose them to us. Accordingly, all the opinions which learned and pious personages at different periods have permitted themselves to express on this question are no more than personal, private sentiments, assertions resting on mere conjecture, the error and futility of which has been demonstrated more than once by events. St. Cyprian and Tertullian, considering the fury of the persecutors and the violence of the war of extermination waged to the utmost against the Christians, designated these calamities and all these horrors as signs of the proximity of the Last Judgment. The end of the world is not far off, said St. John Chrysostom. The earthquakes and the chilling of charity are, as it were, the forerunners and omens of that terrible event. We all know that at the time of the fall of the Roman Empire and the social dislocation which accompanied that great cataclysm, and subsequently, at the beginning of the year 1000 of the Christian era, people believed they were close to the period foretold, and thought they were seeing the prelude of the final destruction in the public disasters and collapse of institutions. Earlier, in the time of St. Paul, the same terror had gripped people's minds. Visionaries and leaders of factions interpreted the words of St. Matthew's Gospel in a grossly literal sense. Convinced that the destruction of the world would follow closely upon the destruction of Jerusalem, they indulged in a rash of extravagant predictions, filling people's imagination with horror. They drew men away from the fulfillment of their civil and religious duties, invited them not to marry, not to build but to abandon themselves to a mind-softening inertia while awaiting the catastrophe which was to strike them. St. Paul felt obliged to disabuse these beguiled and erring souls, and said to them, And we beseech you, brethren, that you may not be easily moved as if the day of the Lord were at hand. For unless there come a revolt first, and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and is lifted up above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself as if he were God. Second Thessalonians 2 Here, then, is a definite fact given by the Holy Ghost and announced by St. Paul in order to dispel the fears to which some were abandoning themselves and to help faithful Christians guard against false systems and uncertain, hazardous predictions. What is clear and undeniable from the passage we have just quoted is that before the end of the world there will appear on earth a profoundly evil man invested with a quasi-superhuman power who, challenging Christ, will wage an impious and foolish war against him. Through the fear which this man will inspire, and particularly by his stratagems and seductive genius, he will succeed in conquering almost the entire universe. He will have altars erected to himself and will compel all peoples to adore him. Will this strange man, unique in his evil, be one of our race? Will his face have the features of man and will the same blood as ours flow in the veins of this ringleader of error and corruption? Or, as some have understood, will he be an incarnation of Satan, a demon thrown up from hell and disguised in human form? Or, again, as other doctors have maintained, is this wicked creature just a myth, an allegorical personage, in whom Holy Scripture and the Fathers intended to portray, in a single image, the totality of tyrants and persecutors, to set out prominently the collective image of all the wicked and all the heresiarchs who have fought against Christ and his Church since the beginning of time? These various interpretations cannot be reconciled with the definite, precise text of the sacred books. Almost all the doctors and fathers – St. Augustine, St. Jerome, and St. Thomas – clearly maintain that this terrifying malefactor, this monster of impiety and depravity, will be a human person. The learned Bellarmine shows that it is impossible to give any other meaning to the words of St. Paul and those of Daniel. St. Paul designates this great adversary by a noun, calling him a man, the man of sin, the son of perdition. Daniel informs us that he will attack all that is holy and worthy of respect, exalt himself boldly against the God of gods and consider as nothing the God of his fathers. The Apostle adds that Christ will kill him. All these various aspects and characteristics evidently cannot be applied to an ideal, abstract being. They can only fit an individual of flesh and blood, a real, definite personage. The fathers and doctors endeavored to ascertain the origin of Antichrist and to discover from what parents and race he will come. They unanimously expressed the opinion that he will be born of Jewish parents, and some declare that he will be of the tribe of Dan. Such is the interpretation they give of the passage of Genesis, Let Dan be a snake in the way, a serpent in the path. Genesis 49.17 And of this other one from Jeremiah 8, the snorting of his horses was heard from Dan. They also surmise that St. John, in his Apocalypse, forbore to mention the tribe of Dan through hatred of Antichrist. But all these suppositions are uncertain. What seems beyond doubt is that Antichrist will be of Jewish birth. St. Ambrose, in his commentaries on the Epistle to the Thessalonians, says that he will be circumcised. Sulpicius so, Severus, in Book 2 of his Dialogues, says that he will compel all his subjects to submit to circumcision. Moreover, all concur in saying that at the beginning of his reign he will succeed, by means of his trickery and fame, in making the Jews believe that he is the Messiah whom they have unceasingly awaited, and that they, in their blindness, will hasten to receive him and honor him as such. That is how Suarez and most of the commentators interpret this saying of our Lord Jesus Christ in St. John 5.43. I am come in the name of my Father, and you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. The same meaning must be given to these other words of St. Paul to the Thessalonians. Because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved, therefore God shall send them the operation of error to believe lying. Now, is it likely that the Jews would acclaim as Messiah a man who did not belong to their race and had not been circumcised? Antichrist, then, will be a Jew. Will he be born of an illegitimate union? The theologian Suarez tells us that it is uncertain. Nevertheless, it may be presumed that a man so utterly evil, so opposed to Christ in his life and morals, will have an infamous origin, and, just as Jesus Christ had the Immaculate Virgin as his mother, so we may conclude by analogy and induction that his avowed adversary will be born of an impure union and will be the offspring of an unchaste woman. He will be a child of fornication, says St. John Damascene, and his birth will be saturated with the breath and spirit of Satan. What may be safely asserted of this man of iniquity is that, right from his tenderest years, he will be completely possessed by the spirit and genius of the devil. The lion of the abyss which, in the last ages of mankind, God and in his inscrutable justice will unleash in order to punish the infidelity of men, will unite himself with him in a certain way, infusing him with the fullness of his evil. No doubt he will not be deprived of the assistance of his guardian angel, nor of the necessary help of sufficient grace which God bestows in this life upon every single man. But his hatred of God will be so violent, his aversion for every good work so invincible, and his association and commerce with the spirit of darkness so close and continual, that, from his cradle to his last breath, he will remain immutably hostile to all divine invitations, and grace from above will never penetrate his heart. St. Thomas tells us that, in his person and works, he will reveal himself as the reverse of the Son of God, and will parody his miracles and works. Since his origin, the evil spirit has ever pursued one single goal— to usurp the place of the omnipotent God, to form a kingdom for himself here below in compensation for the kingdom of heaven from which he is excluded by his rebellion. And, says Tertullian, the more surely to attain this goal, he is in the habit of making himself the ape of God, counterfeiting all his works. The adversary of the last times, then, will not only set himself up as the avowed personal enemy of Jesus Christ, he will aim openly to dethrone him, to replace him in the homage and veneration of men, and have directed to himself the worship and glory which are due to the Creator alone. He will declare, says St. Thomas, that he is the supreme eternal being, and by virtue of this he will ordain that honors and a cult of Latria shall be accorded him. Thus he will have priests, he will have sacrifices offered to him, he will demand that his name should be invoked in oaths, and that men should use it to guarantee the security of treaties. In order to lend greater credence to this belief, he will counter divine revelation with false revelations. In opposition to the ceremonies of divine worship, he will set up his own impious rites. And against the eternal church founded by Christ, he will constitute an abominable society, of which he will be the leader and pontiff. St. Thomas adds that, just as the fullness of the divinity dwells corporally in the incarnate word, so the fullness of all evil will dwell in this terrible man, whose mission and works will be but an imitation in reverse, and an execrable counterfeit of the mission and works of Christ. Through him, Satan will put the seal on his wickedness. He will make this living figure the quintessence, as it were, of all the sinister schemes which he has formed against mankind, and will not cease to arouse in him the burning, implacable hatred of God which moves him and the Lord of heaven, in his hidden counsels, will allow this firebrand from hell to prevail for a time. St. Thomas applies to this delegate of Satan the description Caput Omnium Malorum, head of all evils, the prince and instigator of all the covetousness of the flesh and all the aberrations of the mind, so much so that the masters of lies and architects of evil who have followed one another in the course of the ages will seem, by comparison with this man, mere pygmies beside a giant. Thus he will repeat the infamous deeds of Nero, He will be filled with the cunning and duplicity of Julian the Apostate. He will resort to intimidation and will bend the earth beneath his scepter like Muhammad. He will be a learned man, a philosopher, a skillful orator, outstanding in the arts and in the manufacturing sciences. He will handle mockery and ridicule like Voltaire. Lastly, he will work wonders and rise into the air like Simon Magus. If you ask why divine providence will allow him to exercise such power and seduction, St. Paul the Apostle gives us the reason. Because they receive not the love of the truth, whereby they might be saved, therefore God shall send them the operation of error to believe lying, that all may be judged to have not believed the truth but have consented to iniquity. Second 2 Thessalonians 2:10 2, Suarez says that God will permit the coming of Antichrist, particularly in order to punish the incredulity of the Jews, The latter, not having wished to worship the true Messiah, nor to be convinced by his doctrine and miracles, God will permit them, for their punishment, to attach themselves to a false Messiah, accord credence to his impious deeds and doctrine, and follow him in his dissolute life. At that time, the peril for souls will be great, and the scandal of the contagion universal. Nevertheless, in order that those who are taken by surprise may not attribute their misfortune to anyone but themselves, the Holy Spirit has sought to give us an outline in advance of the principal stages of that terrible, decisive trial, The climax of all those that mankind has undergone. First of all, in order to make us understand the violence and ferocity of the man of sin and the skill with which he will conduct the war he has undertaken against the saints, St. John the Apostle depicts him in Apocalypse 13 under the figure of a monstrous beast having ten heads or diadems on his horns, and written on each of these diadems the name of a blasphemy. According to interpreters, these ten heads and ten diadems signify ten dependent kings, who will be his lieutenants and will act as the executors of his trickery and cruelty. Moreover, St. John tells us that he will be invested with absolute sovereignty, and that his power will extend over all tribes and peoples, over men of every nation and language. Apocalypse 13, 5. As he succeeds in overcoming the saints by a persecution carried to the extreme limit, he will simultaneously give free reign to all kinds of licentiousness, and there will be no freedom except for evil. Lastly, he will be a master in the occult sciences and in the art of magic, and through the agency of demons, he will perform wonderful deeds which deluded men will take for true miracles. The first of these miracles mentioned by St. John will be an apparent resurrection. In one of the wars where Antichrist will appear as if mounted on a chariot of light and fire, he will be mortally wounded in the head. For a time he will be seen lifeless, apparently dead. Then suddenly he will rise, and his wound will be instantaneously healed. At the sight of this, the deluded men, the unbelievers and freethinkers of that time who, like those of our own day, lacking any faith in the supernatural and in revealed truth, will spurn miracles as implacably condemned by science and reason, these men will give credit to the hoax. They will exclaim with enthusiasm and admiration, who is like to the beast, and who shall be able to fight with him? Secondly, the man of sin will make fire come down from heaven, in order to create the belief that he is the master of nature, the ruler of seasons, and that he has dominion over the sky and stars. Thirdly, he will make a statue speak. Demons will use a tree or a lifeless piece of wood as an instrument, with the aid of which they will utter their fabrications and false oracles. Pieces of furniture will also be seen to move and run around of themselves. Mountains will change their position in an instant, and demons, transformed into angels of light, will appear in the air. Then, by an incomprehensible judgment of God, the freethinkers and the great skeptics of the last times will take these impostures and conjuring tricks seriously. Dupes of their own presumption and credulity they will plunge headlong into all the follies of necromancy and divination, thus vindicating in the face of the world the oracle of the sacred books. Now the Spirit manifestly saith that in the last times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to spirits of error and doctrines of devils. First Timothy 4.1 Lastly, it is written that the pride of the man of sin will be boundless. He will open his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and the saints in heaven. Daniel says that he will think himself entitled to abolish times and laws, that is, he will suppress feasts and Sunday observance, alter the order of months and the length and division of weeks, and remove Christian names from the calendar, replacing them with the emblems of the lowest animals. In a word, this counterfeit of Christ will be an atheist in the full sense of the term. He will make away with the cross and every religious symbol. As Daniel again declares, he will substitute abominable rites for the Christian sacrifice in every church. Pulpits will be silent, Teaching and education will be lay, compulsory, and godless. Jesus Christ will be banished from the child's cradle, from the altar where spouses are united, from the bedside of the dying. Over the whole surface of the earth, worship of any god other than this Christ of Satan will not be tolerated. In his impenetrable designs, God will allow men to undergo this supreme, terrible trial in order to teach them how great the power of the devil is and how immense their own weakness. He desired to announce it to us so that we might prepare ourselves even now to sustain it by having recourse to him through prayer, and by providing ourselves with the spiritual weapons of charity and faith. In addition, Antichrist is destined to bring out, in its splendor, the fidelity and constancy of those whose names are written in the Book of Life, those whom all his violence and wiles will not succeed in daunting. On the other hand, it is certain that the duration and bitterness of this persecution will make it the ultimate criterion for discerning the elect from the reprobate, since it will also be the ruin of many whose perseverance will fail. Thus it will be a test set for the ruin and for the resurrection of many, that out of many hearts thoughts may be revealed. Luke 2, 34 Apostasies will be numerous, and courage will become rare. It is written that the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and the stars of the firmament will fall. In other words, the leaders of peoples will be seen to bend the knee before the reigning idol, and, what is still more lamentable, Among the exponents of science, the luminaries of theology, and the oracles of sacred eloquence, a large number will abandon the truth and let themselves be carried along with the current of depravity. Again, St. John speaks of a strange, mysterious character which all, both little and great, rich and poor, freemen and bondmen, will be obliged to have on their right hand or on the forehead. This mark will be a sign of apostasy, attesting that all those who bear it, whether to please the Master or to escape his wrath, have renounced the true Christ and enlisted forever under the banner of the enemy. Those who bear this degrading mark will enjoy the advantages of fortune in abundance. They will have the high salaries, the public offices, and a multiplicity of pleasures and of all desirable possessions. But those who refuse to clothe themselves with this abominable seal will be outlawed. It is written that no man might buy or sell but he that hath the character or the name of the beast or the number of his name. All those who do not have this mark will be forbidden to draw water from the public fountains and will even be unworthy to open their eyes to the light of day and breathe the pure air of the heavens. The tribulation will be great, such as hath not been from the beginning of the world until now, neither shall be. Matthew twenty four twenty one. The just will be dishonored and despised. They will be called fools and disturbers of the peace. They will be accused of trampling upon honor and patriotism by refusing to acclaim the greatest man ever to have appeared in the world, the incomparable genius who has raised human civilization to the zenith of perfection and progress. If the just were not to be sustained by a special assistance from God, there would not be a single one who could withstand the violence of such temptation. Matthew 24, 24 In the dreadful days of the great French Revolution, there were still some havens, places of safety open to convicts and outlaws. The countryside was friendly. There were impenetrable forests and hidden, isolated paths. However, in the period we are engaged in describing, science and human discoveries will have reached their zenith, and the surface of the earth will be dotted with telegraph wires and railways. Every mountain will have been bored. There will be no more rocks or caves, islands or deserts where freedom can expect a refuge. The home itself will no longer be safe. For it is said that Brother shall betray his brother unto death and the father his son. Mark thirteen twelve. It is not usual for the sacred books when they reveal the future to us to go into such precise, minute detail. The prophets speak to us only enigmatically and in abbreviated form. In general, they limit themselves to marking out the main lines of future events. However, so far as the final combat waged against the saints is concerned, the inspired apostles have followed the maxim, Mala previsa minus feriunt, and they have neglected nothing which might strengthen the just during those days of trial and great calamity. Thus they teach us that, at that time, the East will once more become the focal point of politics and human affairs, and that the impostor, possessed with the blind, maniacal passion to desecrate the holiest places, those which have been the scene of the labors and suffering of the god-man, will establish his royalty at Jerusalem. For our consolation, they tell us that God will shorten the duration of his power, limiting it to forty-two months, or three and a half years. The number given in the sacred books probably does not express the length of time which the man of sin will need in order to conquer the earth and reach the zenith of his omnipotence. It is not reasonable to suppose that, even with the aid of the superhuman and satanic powers which will be at his disposal, he will be able to become master of the earth in a single day. It is to be supposed that he will only attain the fullness of his sovereignty gradually, and will require a longish period to subdue the nations and envelop the whole world in the murky web of his trickery and seduction. All we know from St. John and Daniel is that his dominion over men, of every race, tribe, and language, will subsist usquead tempus et tempora et de medium temporis, that is, one year, two more years, and half a year. Daniel in chapter 12 tells us, From the time when the continual sacrifice shall be taken away and the abomination unto desolation shall be set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred ninety days. Hence it follows that the point when Christ will no longer be present on our altars, offering himself as a victim to his father's justice in order to make reparation for men's crimes, is to be reckoned from the day when Antichrist has obtained universal dominion. Only then will the unbloody sacrifice of the altar cease to be celebrated. But until that day and during the time taken by Antichrist to achieve his kingship, the sacrifice of the Mass will continue to subsist. St. John indicates the name of Antichrist, but he deems it proper to tell us only in the form of numerals. We know that in various languages numbers can be translated into letters of the alphabet, and, conversely, the letters of the alphabet into numbers. So St. John tells us that, in a language which he does not make known to us, the name of the beast is expressed by the number 666. The fathers and doctors have labored to discover the key to this number and to ascertain the name hidden beneath this mysterious number. But their investigations have come to nothing. It is possible to imagine a vast number of different names, the letters of which, according to the way they are put together, express the number indicated by St. John. We cannot go beyond the view of St. Irenaeus, who assures us that the Holy Ghost presented the name of Antichrist in the form of this enigmatic number because he wanted its true meaning to remain unknown until the fulfillment of his prophecy, the day when it would be in the interest of men for Antichrist to be revealed to them. Then, says St. John, he that hath understanding, let him count the number of the beast. Apocalypse 13:16. St. Paul tells us that God is faithful, for he has made a pact with temptation and does not permit man to be tested beyond his strength. Here, the temptation will exceed the normal conditions and laws of mankind. It befits the mercy of God that the remedy should be proportionate to the extent of the evil. Now the means of succor foretold is the most superhuman and extraordinary, the most alien to the rules of history and the ordinary workings of providence, of all those that heaven has sent man since the incarnation. Just when the tempest is at its most violent, when the church is leaderless, when the unbloody sacrifice has everywhere ceased and everything seems humanly lost, two witnesses, St. John tells us, will be seen to arise. These two witnesses will be two strange men, appearing suddenly amidst the world, without anyone being able to say of what birth or origin they are, nor from what place or family they have come. This is how St. John speaks of them in the eleventh chapter of the Apocalypse. And I will give unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred sixty days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks that stand before the Lord of the earth. No tongue can express the sheer amazement which will grip mankind at the sight of these two men, strangers to our passions and affairs, one of them having lived six thousand years, the other thirty centuries, in some ethereal region or other, beneath firmaments and upon spheres inaccessible to our senses and understanding. Yet neither of these witnesses is alien to the human family. One of these candlesticks and olive trees is Enoch, the great-great-grandfather of Noah, the direct ancestor of the whole human race. The other is the prophet Elias, who, as the Savior has said, is destined to restore all things. He will come a second time to stem the tide of wickedness, more reckless and unrestrained than it was in the days of Ahab. It will also be the hour of the redemption of Israel. The great prophet will convince the posterity of Abraham that the Messiah has come and will remove the veil of ignorance and darkness which has lain heavy upon their eyes for 19 centuries. What sort of appearance and bearing will these strangers from another age present? What venerable majesty will shine forth from their persons? What inspired language will flow from their lips? Holy Scripture does not tell us. It teaches us that they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth, their garments and features bearing the marks of humility and penance. According to Daniel, the persecution of Antichrist will last for 1,290 days, so the preaching of Enoch and Elias will be 30 days shorter. Hence it follows that they will appear in the period when the persecution is unleashed with the greatest violence. How, within the space of time set for their mission, will they manage to give their testimony in all inhabited places and cover the whole extent of the earth? We answer that it will not be necessary for them to visit every town. It will be enough for them to appear in the principal ones, and for their preaching to be heard in the capitals and main centers of population where Antichrist has been present and has exercised his most powerful fascination. Furthermore, it is unlikely that Enoch and Elias will be constantly together. It is more probable that they will preach separately, until, by a command from God or following a providential inspiration, they suddenly come together for the final battle. At first, no doubt, incredulous men will refuse to admit their identity. They will seek to lay hold of them and punish them as mountebanks and sham visionaries. Public opinion will shower them with satirical barbs and mockery, and the organs of publicity will persist in ignoring them and pretend not to know of them. The persecutor, foaming with rage, will try to have them put to death, but as long as their mission lasts, they will be guarded by a superior force. Here is what St. John, in chapter 11, verse 5, says, And if any man will hurt them, fire shall come out of their mouths and shall devour their enemies and if any man will hurt them, in this manner must he be slain. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and they have powers over waters, to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they will. The gospel is not so specific about the result and efficacy of the mission of these two great witnesses, but it may be taken as certain that they will undeceive a large mass of the deluded and bring back most of those whom fear or ambition had enticed from worship of the true God. Indeed, their preaching will need to have a power which no other word since those of the gospel have ever had, since it will overcome the obstinacy of the Jews, who, bowing to the luster of the marvels and the evidence of the facts, will return beneath the staff of the shepherd of shepherds to form with the Christians one flock and one fold. However, God gives his graces with due proportion. When the light has been given, when men have had all the time they need to distinguish truth from error, God in his wisdom will then suspend the miracle. That is how providence invariably acts. So it was of old with Samson when, once the Philistines had been humbled and defeated, God took away from him his spirit and the stupendous strength with which he had endowed him. Heaven proceeded again in the same way with Joan of Arc. Once her mission had been fulfilled, when she had routed the English and placed the crown back upon the head of Charles Seventh, her genius and military talent seemed to pale. She was taken prisoner and reverted to the normal circumstances of human life. So shall it be in the case of Enoch and Elias. Besides, the miracle, if prolonged, would have no other effect than to confirm in their obduracy stubborn men who had refused to receive their words with a submissive ear and heart. In short, the two witnesses are not dead, although one of them is 6,000 and the other 3,000 years old, and it is necessary that they should seal their testimony by the shedding of their blood, and be subjected to the law of human nature from which Christ himself did not desire to be spared. Here, then, is what will take place, says St. John, in the chapter already quoted, And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the abyss shall make war against them and shall overcome and kill them. And their bodies shall lie in the streets of the great city which is called spiritually Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord also was crucified. And they of the tribes and peoples and tongues and nations shall see their bodies for three days and a half, and they shall not suffer their bodies to be laid in sepulchres. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt upon the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them that saw them. And at that hour there was made a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell. And there were slain in the earthquake names of men, seven thousand, and the rest were cast into a fear and gave glory to the God of heaven. St. John does not tell us what the fate of Antichrist will be, but St. Paul teaches that the Lord Jesus shall kill him with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy him with the brightness of his coming. Some have concluded from this passage that Christ is to come down in person to strike his great adversary, and that this will be the day when he will appear in his glory and majesty. This interpretation is incorrect. St. Thomas and St. John Chrysostom explain the words in the sense that Christ will strike Antichrist by dazzling him with a brightness, which will be like an omen and sign of his second coming. St. Paul does not at all say that Christ will kill him with his own hands, but by the spirit of his mouth. That is, as St. Thomas explains, by virtue of his power, as a result of his command whether, as some believe, executing it through the cooperation of St. Michael the Archangel, or having some other agent, visible or invisible, spiritual or inanimate, intervene. What is certain is that Satan will be hurled back into the darkness of the abyss, the reign of the man of evil will be utterly destroyed, and his power, which aspired to extend up to the heavens, will vanish like a cloud of smoke. Will the resurrection of the body and the last judgment follow close upon that great event? Holy Scripture is silent on this point, and the Church has not wished to define anything among the interpreters of holy writ some affirm and others deny it suarez expresses the view that after the death of antichrist the world will not subsist more than 45 days he bases his opinion on the prophecy of daniel who after announcing that the persecution of the man of sin will last for 1290 days adds these words happy he who has hope and holds firm until the 1335th day these words are precise and seem to admit of no doubt they are in harmony with those of saint john in apocalypse 15:2 And I saw them that had overcome the beast and his image and the number of his name singing the canticle of Moses, the servant of God, and the canticle of the Lamb. In other words, the Christians and the remnant of the Jews henceforth have one spirit and one faith. They address the same praises and blessings to the Son of God and, together, proclaim his glory, saying, Great and wonderful are thy works, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, O King of the ages. However, if it may be granted that, after Antichrist, the end of the world will not come for some centuries yet, The same cannot be said of the supreme crisis which shall bring about the great unity. For if we study but a moment the signs of the present time, the menacing symptoms of our political situation and revolutions, as well as the progress of civilization and the increasing advance of evil corresponding to the progress of civilization and the discoveries in the material order, we cannot fail to foresee the proximity of the coming of the man of sin and of the days of desolation foretold by Christ. Holy Scripture gives us three main features which will mark the dominance of Antichrist. First, he will be emperor and absolute master of the universe. Secondly, he will have Jerusalem as his capital. Thirdly, he will be as clever as he is violent, and the war which he will wage against the saints will be primarily one of deceit and seduction. First, Antichrist will be lord of the world. It is abundantly clear that the effect of all the events of the present time is to prepare the social setting in which the dominance of the man of sin will be exercised. On the one hand, the railway has reduced barriers and triumphed over distance. The telegraph allows a despot to transmit his orders from one point of the universe to the other with the instantaneousness of thought. Moreover, the peoples of the diverse races are mingling. Russian and American, Japanese and Chinese meet on the same ships, rub shoulders and cross one another's paths in our great cities and in the commercial centers of Europe, California and equatorial Africa. Already the distant peoples of India are adopting our inventions, casting rifled guns and beginning to build armored ships and arsenals. China, that vast empire swarming with people, where each day the seas and rivers engulf a huge excess of human beings whom the rich, fertile soil can no longer feed, she, too, has her mechanics, her engineers, and is learning our strategy and industrial progress. Now, have our latest wars not shown that, at the present time, the issue of battles lies above all in numbers, and that, in armies, as in the realm of politics, what determines success and wins the victory is the brutal, inexorable law of superior numbers? Thus the hour bids to be not far off when these millions of barbarians who populate the east and north of Asia will have at their disposal more soldiers, more ammunition, and more military leaders than all other peoples. And the day can be foreseen when, having become fully conscious of their number and strength, they will hurl themselves in countless hordes upon our Europe, enfeebled and forsaken by God. There will then be invasions more terrible than those of the Vandals and Huns. Provinces will be pillaged, rights violated, and small nations destroyed and ground down like dust. Then a vast agglomeration of all the inhabitants of the earth will be observed, under the scepter of a single leader, who will be either Antichrist or one of his immediate predecessors. That day will see the obsequies of human freedom. The unity of all peoples will be rebuilt for the last time upon the ruins of all the suppressed nationalities. The empire of evil will be accomplished. Divine providence will scourge the world by subjecting it, body and soul, to one master, the supreme head of the Masonic lodges, who will be moved solely by hatred of men and contempt of God. Accordingly, any careful observer of the events of the present time cannot escape the conviction that everything is being done to bring about a social environment where the man of sin, by combining in his person all the depravity and every false doctrine of his age, will be produced spontaneously and effortlessly, like the parasitical tapeworm which breeds naturally in gangrenous flesh and organs. Now, is it improbable that in social conditions like ours, in which the most dreadful and unforeseen events loom up with the rapidity of steam and lightning, there may live a man who will take advantage of the chaos into which our revolutions will have cast us, and succeed in beguiling the masses and gaining mastery over minds and hearts, then pledging himself to regenerate mankind will send out a rallying cry to which all his co-religionists will respond, thus achieving the conquest of universal power, a stupendous dominion over minds and bodies, a dominion accepted enthusiastically by the universality of misled, seduced peoples, Lastly, may we not believe that this powerful and wicked man, who will imprison the world in the iron grip of an indescribable, unrestrained despotism and unify the human race through the enslavement of consciences and the humbling of spirits, will be the personage portrayed and predicted by St. John as Antichrist, and that he will be the man whom divine providence has desired to use in order to undeceive Israel, who will at first have acclaimed him as her Messiah and King? Finally, what will be the characteristic marks of the persecution of Antichrist? Its main features have been described by Cornelius Alapide and Suarez in accordance with Scripture and the Fathers. In the first place, what is certain and almost of faith is that of all the persecutions which the Church has had to suffer, that of Antichrist will be the most terrible and the most violent. First, because this persecution will be general and will extend over the whole earth, it is written, And they came upon the breadth of the earth and encompassed the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Apocalypse 28. St. Augustine in Book 20 of the City of God explains this text from St. John by saying that all the infidels, heretics, sectarians, and depraved men scattered over the surface of the earth will unite with Antichrist to make war on the saints and to persecute those who are faithful to God. Secondly, this persecution will be the most severe and violent of all because it will be inspired neither by superstition and fanaticism nor by a blind attachment to the worship of idols, as were the persecutions unleashed by the pagan emperors, Its purpose will not be to assuage pride, nor to satisfy an unbridled lust for power, like the persecution of Muhammad, nor will it be aroused by the unrestrained cupidities of the flesh and by the lure of plunder, like the one to which the German princes subjected the church under Protestantism and in the lifetime of Luther. It will be a persecution inspired solely by hatred of God, in which God and his Christ will be directly challenged, and its sole objective will be the extermination of the divine kingship, the complete annihilation of Christianity and of all positive religion. Tiberius, Nero, and the most frightful tyrants of paganism at least acknowledged an apprehension and, as it were, a distant reflection of the divinity in the idols, which they sought to compel the Christians to adore. But in the times of which we are speaking, it will no longer be permissible to accord even a modified and corrupted adoration to any divinity. All men without exception will be forced to honor and render a cult of Latria to Satan himself, personified in Antichrist, that is, in the most evil and abominable man that humanity has ever produced. Thirdly, this persecution which will mark the last ages will be waged with a well-nigh irresistible seductiveness that there may be led into error if it were possible even the elect. Cornelius Alapide says, all the arts, pains, and practices of politics will come together. At first, Antichrist will convince the Jews that he is the Messiah. In order to deceive them the more successfully, he will hide behind a mask of moderation and feigned holiness. When St. Paul tells us that he will have himself worshipped in the temple of God, he seems to imply that he will rebuild the temple of Jerusalem, utterly destroyed by Titus. Consequently, he will prescribe circumcision and, for a time, restore the bloody sacrifices and the other rites of the Judaic religion. As for those who are foreign to the Jewish religion, he will draw them to himself first by persuasion and eloquence. He will be skilled in artifice and will be taught by the devil himself all knowledge useful for the ends for which the evil spirit destines him. St. Anselm tells us that he will be acquainted with all the natural sciences and will know all the sacred texts by heart. In the second place, he will win men over by lavishing gold and riches. He will be the wealthiest person on earth. Satan will deliver to him all the treasures concealed in the bowels of the sea and in the hidden depths of the earth. Fourthly, he will fill all men with admiration by his genius and by the amazing rapidity of his elevation to the height of fortune and omnipotence. As for the ignorant and the multitude, he will fascinate them by marvels, St. Thomas says that just as Christ worked miracles in confirmation of his doctrine, so also the man of sin will work false miracles in confirmation of his errors. And just as the true Christ worked wonders by the power of God, the author of all truth, so too his adversary will work, as we have indicated above, by the power of Satan, the father of fraud and lies. Thus the man of sin will not perform true miracles like Jesus Christ, but will perform false and apparent ones. All his wonderful works will be, in reality, mere illusions and works of fantasy, so that, as St. Athanasius says, When he appears to resurrect a dead man, either the man whom he resurrects will not really be dead, or else if he is dead, he will not really be restored to life. Lastly, the same saint continues, the works performed by Antichrist, which appear to transcend the laws of nature, will not be miracles in the true sense, but effects and phenomena of the physical order, performed through the intermediary of certain secret, hidden and natural causes. The better to beguile men, Antichrist will permit licentiousness and the dissipations of the flesh, and will stimulate the most intoxicating pleasures. Fifthly, the persecution of Antichrist will be the bloodiest and most barbarous of all those which Christianity has ever suffered. Jesus Christ so assures us when he says, For there shall be then great tribulation, such as hath not been from the beginning of the world until now, neither shall be. Matthew twenty four twenty one. This can be surmised if we refer back to two causes. The first is the vast power and the stupendous instruments of force and destruction which Antichrist will have at his disposal, and with these the evil and fury of the men appointed to execute his commands. The second will be the terrifying wickedness of the devil, for, says St. John, in those days God will allow him to leave the fiery prison where he is chained and will give him full permission to seduce and satisfy his hatred of the human race. Whence it follows, says St. Cyril, that there will then be multitudes of martyrs more glorious and admirable than those who formerly fought with lions in the amphitheaters of Rome and Gaul. These had to struggle against mere agents of the devil, but the confessors of the last ages will have to struggle against him who was a murderer from the beginning. To torment them, the old enemy will practice monstrous tortures with unheard of refinements, unparalleled in past centuries, which the human mind could never have contrived to invent by itself. Finally, the last feature of the persecution of Antichrist, it will be so violent that it will succeed in making almost the entirety of Christians apostatize. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Apocalypse 13. I beheld, and lo, that horn made war against the saints and prevailed over them. Daniel 7. St. Paul informs us that Christ will not return until the great apostasy has come. 2 Thessalonians 2 Interpreting these words of the Apostle, St. Augustine tells us that if, in every age, we have seen believers renounce Christ on account of the wiles of heretics and the fear of persecutors and tyrants, nevertheless the defection which will take place under Antichrist is called the apostasy, properly speaking, because, in number and extension, this apostasy will exceed all that has been seen in previous times. However, it would not be correct to conclude from this testimony that there will be none of the elect left on earth, and that the Son of God will fail to keep the promise made to His church when He said, On account of the elect, the days will be shortened. Moreover, St. John in his Apocalypse adds, And all that dwell upon the earth adored Him, whose names are not written in the Book of Life. St. Augustine tells us that in the reign of Antichrist, there will be multitudes of martyrs who will display a heroic constancy, and also a number, more or less large, of confessors who will manage to escape into caves and high or sheer mountains and God will see to it that these sanctuaries shall elude the vigilance and investigations of the persecutors, and will not permit the devil to point them out to them. Daniel tells us that, at the time when this terrible persecution breaks out, the abomination of desolation will openly sit enthroned in the holy place. The king shall do according to his will, says Daniel. He shall be lifted up and shall magnify himself against every god, and he shall speak great things against the god of gods, and he shall make no account of the god of his fathers, and he shall not regard any gods." Once the man of sin has cowed the human race by his threats and entangled it in the meshes of his lies and wiles, he will observe no restraint, show his hand, and act openly. He will not permit anyone to worship or invoke any other god than himself, and will proclaim himself sole lord of heaven and earth. Wherever he is not present in person, men will be obliged to pay homage to his image or statue. He will tolerate neither the Mosaic religion nor natural religion itself. He will persecute with equal thoroughness Jews, schismatics, heretics, deists, and every sect that recognizes the existence of a supreme being and the immortality of the life to come. Yet God in his wisdom will draw good from evil. The horrible tempest which his justice has allowed to be unleashed upon the earth will result in the disappearance of false religions. Along with Judaism, it will abolish the remains of Mohammedanism, idolatrous superstitions, and every religion hostile to the church. It will deal the finishing blow to the sects of darkness, Freemasonry, carbonerism, Illuminism, and all subversive societies will vanish in the vortex of wickedness which will be their work, and which they had prepared for centuries in the belief that it would be their definitive supreme triumph. They will have assisted unintentionally in the establishment of the reign of unity foretold by our Lord. There will be one flock and one shepherd. The triumph of the wicked one will be of short duration, but the consolations which follow will be universal, abundant, proportionate to the extent of the tribulations which the Church will have suffered. A son of Israel, converted not long ago, and today a priest and doctor, captivated by the grand spectacle which the Church of God will present in that fortunate era, when Jews and Gentiles, seated at one in the same banquet, have become one in the same family, under the crook of a single shepherd, exclaims in a transport of joy, In the life of Christ on earth, there were two great days of triumph when he was acknowledged as Messiah and King. The Feast of the Epiphany, which was a kind of morning feast which the assembled nations represented in the persons of the Magi gave to Jesus Christ, and Palm Sunday, which was the evening feast, given belatedly to Christ by Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, the day of Israel's acclamations. Now today, after nineteen centuries of fidelity, the great feast of the Epiphany is forgotten by the nations and their leaders, who have rejected Christ and His Church. Let me then in the eventide of the Church's life salute the great Palm Sunday and the unexpected outburst of acclamation from the old race of Jacob, Let me salute and sing of this day, when the doors of the synagogue will be opened amidst wild rejoicing for the triumphal entry of the Messiah, whom she has so long awaited but not acknowledged. Let me sing of the day when the remnant of Israel will strew their garments upon the path of Christ and His church, and the air will be fragrant with perfume from that blood which, this time, will fall as a stream of love upon Israel and her children. O feast of palms, rise forth over the church! Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered together thy children, as the hen doth gather her chickens under her wings! But this time, O Jerusalem, you will have desired it, you will have flung yourself beneath the wings. Hosanna and everlasting glory to Jesus Christ in the highest, and to the church wherein Israel, after a long absence, has found again her Messiah and King. However, the final consummation will not come yet, as it is written in Apocalypse, chapter 11. And the seventh angel sounded the trumpet, and there were great voices in heaven, Voices of angels and of virgins, together with the voices of confessors and holy martyrs, will hail Christ with praise and acclamations, giving thanks for his victory over Antichrist and for the extermination of the wicked. All men now become worshippers of one and the same God, all professing the same faith, united in the same adoration, sharing the same table, will exclaim in chorus, The kingdom of this world is become our Lord's and his Christ's. We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, who art and who wast and who art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and thou hast reigned